Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by Evermed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world-leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevic. Hello and welcome to the new episode of the Pharma Launch Secrets podcast. Today I'm joined by Nirmal, Senior Product Manager of the Pharma Vertical at Telium, the number one most trusted customer data platform. Nirmal has over 10 years of experience in life sciences and technology as a product lead, and he previously worked at pharma companies such as Merck and GSK as a product manager and product owner, and he also worked at IQVIA and American Board of internal medicine. Welcome, Nirmal. Pleasure to have you here today on the show. Thanks, Bozzi. Thanks for having me and uh, pleasure to be here too. All right. So today we'll be talking about CDPs. Uh, sometimes when I say CDP, I spend a lot of time talking to pharma companies, and device companies, societies. Sometimes I need to explain what CDP means. And some people know, some people don't know. And so it would be really good to really understand first to start with definition. So what is a CDP? What does it stand for? And why is it important for companies to have CDPs? Yep. So there, is, uh, there are a few definitions floating around. Yeah, well, I'll give you the one we like best. But one thing everybody can agree on is CDP stands for Customer Data Platform. So the term was first coined back in 2013. As I said, there are a few, defin- few defin- definitions uh, floating around. The way we see it, it's a software platform. That's what a CDP is that centralizes customer data from different sources like websites, mobile devices, IoT, et cetera, and makes all this data available to other systems like CRM systems, websites, email servers, and what have you for marketing efforts, customer service efforts, and other customer-related initiatives. Well, the idea behind the CDP is to create and maintain a single comprehensive view of the customer and leverage this view to eliminate any gaps the customer may see in their customer journey and make the journey as seamless as possible. When we say gaps in the customer journey, what are we talking about? If you've ever received an email from, say, a merchant recommending a product that you already purchased at that same merchant's brick and mortar store, that's a gap. This gap could have been, could have been easily addressed by making the purchase information from the brick and mortar store available to all marketing channels, including the email marketing system. So having a CDP helps you address these gaps by making sure the right data is available on the right channel at the right time. Thank you. And I remember I was struggling to explain in some meetings what CDP means. And I found on your website this visualization that shows various data sources, like all going into one center, which is the CDP. And then from there being used for various channels, online and offline channels. So that visual with low fix coming into one place, it reminded me of a keyhole in a way, just horizontal. Um, is is that the best way to think about CDPs? You can say, so it's like, it's a, think of it as a data orchestration engine, if you will. We're not trying to replace a CRM system or an email marketing system or anything like that. It's very much a like a complex rules-based data orchestration pipeline. You're able to, easily bring data in from different sources, right? You're able to build complex rules on how these data should be used and unique profiles are created using these complex rules. And then that same unique view of a customer is sent to anywhere that view needs to reside. So it's very much a like a complex rules-based 
data orchestration pipeline that helps you break down the silos a company may have within their customer data systems, if that helps. Yeah. And then does that mean, again, to understand the fundamentals, does that mean that you're building a profile of an individual, let's say doctor, in the case of pharma, of individual 360 profile of all the interactions they had with content, with the company, with anywhere else. So, and then you have data on that individual so that the marketing can be really done in a personalized way afterwards. That is correct. That is correct. And not, not only that, right? If you are, you're doing personalization, but if your CRM system isn't talking to your email system, which isn't talking to your website personalization system, you are engaging the HCP, but you're not, you don't have a single view of the customer, correct? Like it, the experience being, ends up being very disjointed. So by building, getting all this data into one place and making sure that view is what gets used anywhere, that's really what you're trying to achieve. So what that happens is, you know, as the customer moves from channel to channel, for example, you mentioned HCP, which is, you know, very relevant for the pharma um, industry. So as they are doing uh, drug research on a specific site, and when they go check their email, whatever email marketing content they receive takes into account their behavior, the research behavior elsewhere. So it is that's what we mean by seamless and hold on, uh, consistent. Yeah, got it. Because I will think of the, the opposite experiences, again, just to help listeners understand how valuable that is. All of us have experienced it. I often use a hotel example. So you use one channel to book a hotel, and then offline, they give you something because they know that you've been a member of, let's say, Marriott, and then you enter the hotel room, and then you see another message for you that you have something extra, and then et cetera, et cetera. So the opposite of that experience is that you get non-personalized blast emails. Huh? Correct. And even worse, you may already be a customer, so you're getting blast something even though you already bought it. Uh, so that will be, to me, kind of the opposite example that all of us have experienced and can relate to. Absolutely. So Okay, good. So I wanted to check that for you. And if you're a VIP customer, correct? Like you're expecting VIP treatment, which if you're not guessing, it leads to a very disappointing experience. So that's that's really what we're talking about. Got it. Great. And the overall, I think, trend has been for some time, but even more and more with this precision and personalization at the individual level in the same way that, you know, Instagram and TikToks and others are able to adjust to our individual needs and Netflix then hear that any company can adjust to our needs and use the channels that we want and interact with us at the right time in the right way. Could be content, could be a person, but in the right way at the right time. Okay. okay. Correct. And ATPs and patients are, you know, they are customers at the end of the day. You know, they are spending a lot of time on Amazon and Netflix. They're expecting a curated experience when they bring, when they're doing research on a pharma brand. They don't even know it, but they are bringing that online shopping mentality. So it's, it's good to know it's important to know where they're coming from, what their preferences are, and then cater to them accordingly. Got it. Okay. And then, and then when it comes to uh, pharma, so how are how is you are leading as a subject matter expert as well on the pharma side on uh, ethelium. So when you discuss with your colleagues from other verticals, how is pharma different in terms of their needs when it comes to CDPs? Is pharma behind, ahead in personalization? Are there any specific needs in terms of compliance and things like that? Absolutely. So compliance, yeah, that, that's one of the many challenges, right? So pharma is kind of unique. I mean, there are this, they have several challenges. Some of them are unique. Others are general marketing challenges, customer engagement challenges. So one challenge that they're facing is what I just mentioned, right? Like they, patients and ATPs, they have access to so much info. So it's getting harder since they're bringing that mentality, the shopping mentality, 
to doing research, it's harder for brands to stand out, especially if you're talking a, a therapy area like oncology. There, there is a lot of competition, uh, for lack of a better word, in this therapy area. So it's harder to stand out. That's one challenge pharma brands are facing um, in today's world. And the other challenge is regulations, as you just mentioned. Pharma is a heavily regulated industry, as we all know. So when it comes to pharma marketing, we're not talking about selling a pair of shoes to a customer, right? It requires a great deal of sensitivity and empathy to be, to do successful pharma marketing. And especially if you're talking patient marketing, and if PHI, protected health information, is involved in any shape or form, then HIPAA becomes a major concern. And online tracking is getting more and more sophisticated by the day. So there is a lot of room for unintended data leaks, and that could be a major liability for pharma companies if you're talking PHI again. So pharma companies have been very risk averse for this reason when it comes to customer engagement. The other challenge, you know, coming back to the ACP realm is the, the, the no see doctor trend. You may know what this is. I mean, these are ACPs that flat out refuse to see sales reps. This was, the, this was on the rise even back in 2018. The pandemic has further accelerated this trend. So conventional ATP marketing focused on building a relationship with the ATP and getting FaceTime. This is just not possible with a nosy doctor and which who can easily say, oh, this is like post-COVID, I don't want to see you. I don't want to spend any FaceTime with you. Yeah, so these are some challenges, I would say, unique to pharma industry. Got it, very clear. And then when it comes to a great user experience, just to bring this together, pharma and CDP. So great user experience, let's say on the HCP side, is that the pharma company, if I'm an HCP, that the pharma company would know whether I use a product or don't use a product, whether I interacted three weeks ago with a piece of content they sent me or on a third party or first party website, and that I had a question that I asked medical information folks on the pharma website. So now when I get approached by either rep or, or MSL or person, they, they have all that context and they can have meaningful conversation with me, let's say in that setting. Would that be like an example of good experience? Absolutely. So yeah, it's it's really about, you know, like I mentioned breaking down of silos, correct? Like that's what a CDP does. So the ideal world we're looking at is online data, like, you know, what research they're doing, being leveraged to have real world conversations, you know, whether it's uh, by a sales rep or an MSL or even like the video content we serve. So online behavior influencing the offline world and offline behavior influencing the online world. So basically you're talking about, so if you're having a real world conversation, that's taking into account what their online behavior was. And if a real world conversation did happen, when they go back to like, let's say, you know, doing research on the same product, that real world conversation must be taken into account as well. So everything is like, you know, one unified um, experience really. Got it, very clear. So now the logical question that comes to you know, like a non-expert CDP, the logical question is, you know, I heard that when I, when I had my first class in market research was the professor said garbage in, garbage out. And so that means that we really need to pay attention to getting the data sources clean, comprehensive, as robust as possible data set. And so how does that work in, for the pharma industry, let's say talking about HCPs, how much of, let's say, if 100% is maximum, which is like, how much is, is realistic to be able to obtain from all the interactions that an HCP would have with first party or third party, which I'll come back as a question on that as well. But from, let's say, 100% data, everything the doctor did on first party, pharma owned, let's say, website, and on a Medscape interacting with something there related to the product pharma products, what's realistic to have? Is it to shoot for 50% or 70 or 80%? 
so that people don't like be too tough on themselves. <laughs> Right. So I would say it depends on the different therapy areas and, you know, are we talking rare diseases? Are we talking uh, something a bit different like, you know, oncology? It depends. But I would say without, you know, giving a, a like 70% seems realistic to me based on what we've seen. And not to mention there are new data providers coming into the mix all the time. So there is a lot of, you know, huge impetus to do digital transformation within the pharma space. So not only are there well-established data provider players, in the space, but there are knowledge gaps, there are data gaps that the new players are trying to address. So it's, I think the gap is, you know, getting getting closed all the time. So yeah, depending on the therapy area we're talking about, like well over 70% seems pretty realistic to me from what I've seen with customers. Okay, great. Now, which brings me to the question about first party and third party data. And again, just to clarify, I find myself often needing to clarify what it means. So first party is, let's say, pharma-owned website, like Apple owns apple.com, right? So they have all the data people are doing there. They can choose whether registration is needed or not. And the third party is, like, let's say, Medscape, Duximity, any places, like what's called publishers, right, where doctors spend their time. And so there is... Of course, last two or three years, there are discussions about cookie-less world where there is increasing emphasis on having your own first-party data. But, you know, on the other side, doctors, like anywhere else, they first look at kind of third-party reviews of something, and then they look at, you know, first-party, what pharma says about their product. One is more trusted, one is less trusted. Everything has its role. So, but in terms of collecting the data, in medicine, I know that a lot of these websites and, and publisher places have a piece of code where, where doctors are kind of spending time online and that you actually can know whether Dr. John Smith went to multiple websites or not. So how difficult or easy is to collect first-party versus third-party data? And what is unique specifically for the population of doctors versus other industries that you see? Yeah, so with the right technology, first-party data isn't that much of a challenge anymore. Again, pharma companies were very risk-averse at the beginning, but now they're starting to wake up to the technology out there, uh, like CDPs, when it comes to collecting first-party data. And first-party data is huge. And pharma companies, you know, it's really, you know, website is one way, one example of first-party data. It is the data you're getting directly in your, from your interactions with your customer, correct? Like, it's, it's highly valuable. The trust issue is automatically solved, which is not to say third-party data is unreliable, but first-party data should be at the heart of their digital transformation and customer engagement, ATP engagement strategy. So I would say it's getting, it's easier than pharma companies realize. When it comes to third-party data, yes, it's it may not be as reliable as first-party data, but again, we're talking about an ever-growing network of third-party providers, correct? Like, And the data sources they collect the data from are also expanding. Um, on a daily basis. So it is easy and essential to have your own first-party data infrastructure, but that won't solve the entirety of the, the customer data gap. So that's where you know, reliable, trusted third-party vendors come into play as well. So by combining the two, that's when you have a like a like a foolproof data strategy, if you will, in engaging your customers. Not sure if that answered your question, but yeah. feel mm-hmm. free to ask follow-up questions. And do CDP companies work with publishers mm-hmm. to be able to kind of know that the Dr. John Smith can even do in ULL, watch something on Medscape and that data goes into CDP so that pharma company can benefit from that. Correct. So that's where, you know, like certain key integrations and partnerships come into play. Um, you have to keep in mind, pharma is a very niche industry, correct? Like it's, it's not the Facebooks of the world, the metas, the Instagrams of the world 
they're not really catering to this industry because you are talking about like very niche specialized websites where the, all this research, brand research is happening uh, that ATPs are conducting. So there are specialized providers that you know work with these network of endemic sites to identify what products are being researched and who's researching them and what content is being consumed, things like that. So that information gets collated. And it's essential to have partnerships for a CDP vendor, to have partnerships with these niche providers to make that um, identity research information available so that that full value can be unlocked about from knowing who the ATP is, where they come from. And then that way, when they come to your website, you already know where they've been. Got Yeah. So that's like, you know, the ideal situation of, and I was reading actually yesterday a book about content experience and personalization, and I will be talking to the author of the book soon on my podcast. And it was interesting because he said it across different industries. This was not pharma related. He said across different industries, people are in general comfortable sharing their data as long as they see a benefit of personalization. So, and they trust the brand. So they trust Medscape. They are Medscape. They have no problem that Medscape is tracking and sharing that if their experience is more personalized because of that. So, right. And, you know, interestingly, doctors, you, doctors are more forthcoming than you might imagine. When you're talking patients, that's, that's another, that's a conversation for another day. But doctors, you know, w- with the right network, when they're on certain sites, you know, they, when they trust the site, that information, they do tend to be more um, honest about what they're expecting, what could be offered to improve their customer experience, if you will. And that data insight, those insights are available there. They're sitting there to be leveraged. And pharma brands do, would do very well by, uh, by acting on them. Got it. Okay. Very clear. And one other question I wanted to ask you about that is the value of registration versus not registration. Because oftentimes I'm in conversation with pharma and they say, well, it's notoriously difficult for doctors to get them to opt in unless there is specific reason. And sometimes it comes down to also the skill of the marketeer, the copy, the headline, the knowledge of the landing pages and conversion mechanisms and all that. So at the same time, you know, Netflix is able to, and Spotify, for me, those two examples always come to mind. Spotify has those like made for you, like playlists made for you. I think they call it made for you. It's incredible. And so, but one of the reasons why they're able to do that so well is because we are always registered there. So how important is to have a doctor to register, whether it's on a pharma first party, or Medscape in order for data to be collected? I would say it's very important. You know, it makes it understand. I mean, to if they don't register and if they're doing research on another. So one research site, they're registering. Other research site, they're not. It could be very hard to tie the two people together. We may think they're two different people, but they are one of the same. We don't know that. Eventually, as they provide more information about themselves, they we can make the connection and tie the two people together and say they're one of the same person. But registration upfront makes it much easier. And as I said, the, the having the right ecosystem, having the right partners to collect this research information about ATP behavior is important because these, this, the trusted, they come with the trusted network of partners. And these partners are very good at getting the ATP to register because they offer a lot of value in return, right? Like why would they feel uh, compelled to provide, register and provide uh, reveal who they are because they're not getting value in return. So it's about uh, offering enough value to the HCP so they feel more comfortable registering and they are getting value in return. 
Yeah, it has to be some sort of give and take. I know that we've tested this on our side different ways to do that. And we would first offer some content for if it's a video content for 30, 60, 90 seconds, and then ask for an opt-in because you get a sample. Oh, is this this worth me kind of putting an email knowing that everyone has a fear of then being bombarded by emails? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It has to be some sort of give and take. It's a cash run issue, isn't it? Like you have to give them the right content so they feel interested, but without knowing who they are, it gets harder to give them the right content. So there was a delicate dance there for sure. Yeah. And I talk to doctors in all the time as well. And they're like, oh my God, there's this company sending me three emails a day. I'm like, come on. Like, and so there is that fear. We all experienced it. And so it has to be really clear. Sometimes I'm thinking on the opt-in pages or registration pages, we should put like, we will not email you every day. <laughs> so right, people know. Right. And then almost like, you know, this opt-in for software services when it says like, free trial will not require your credit card information. <laughs> so immediately alleviate the number one concern. When it That's you know really great to know and the differences like CDP, pharma, first party, third party, registration, non-registration. So what are some of the biggest then sources of data flowing into the CDP right now across the board for, let's say, doctors, but we can touch on patients as well? Absolutely. Before I go on, funny, you should mention them ignoring emails and feeling bombarded. That's where something, a technology like a CDP can come into play. Rather than asking, hey, how often would you like to be contacted, right, if they specify their email address? We can, by having a CDP in place, we can learn their behavior. If they're they're ignoring these emails, you see you said three emails a day. If they're not being opened, we can track that information, correct, like based on the email open rate. So we're already learning, okay, we sent all these emails. They didn't open any of them. Maybe we should back off. So by having tech like CDP in place, we can analyze the data, understand, set up automatic rules to say, okay, if this person doesn't open emails, don't stop sending them emails. So maybe check in with them um, once a week or so rather than three times a day. So just wanted to, you know, give you that example to add some context. But coming back to your question, yeah, so first-party data, as I said, it's huge. You know, um, Atelier, my employee, we call, we say first-party data is the connective tissue when it comes to understanding and engaging the target audience. Yeah, it just gives you insights that you couldn't get elsewhere. But obviously, that first-party data alone isn't going to be sufficient. So third-party, trusted third-party providers do play an important role. If you're talking examples, let's say first-party, like you have to ask what you're trying to what questions are you trying to answer, right? For example, what white papers are the ATPs download? What kind of product-related content are they most interested in? Are they interested in dosage info? Are they interested in side effects? What product-related videos are they watching? All of this, this is all like first-party data, essentially. You know, it could be data sitting in the CRM system. It could be data sitting in the pharma company's master data management system. So these are all insights that the pharma company learned from their direct interaction with the ATP. If you're talking patient data, that could be prescription data uh, from a farm, like a pharmacy. It could be, and that, you know, it's very necessary to measure ScriptLift. If you're trying to measure the success of your ad campaigns, ScriptLift is important to measure. And the only way you can do that is by using prescription data. And it could be data around product research done by HCPs across different endemic sites, like you mentioned, WebMD, Medscape, and what have you. There is a huge network of those sites. And any data coming from those sites is important and they would become third-party data. Another example of third-party data would be professional affiliation data. Where does this HCP work and what capacity? You know, and the demographic information. Uh, what's their geography? What is their specialty? What, you know, what's their title? Are they an MD? Are they a DO? Are they a PA? Are they a PA? Things like that. 
and even marketing campaign impressions and metrics. You know, you companies are placing ads on third-party sites, but how are these ads doing? So campaign impressions and other metrics also are examples of um, third-party data, I would say. So essentially any data, right, that helps pharma companies create a personalized experience for the ATPs of patients should be treated as a potential data source. Whether it's first party or third party, then it's coming up with the, the strategy to obtain, get your hands on the data. Got it. Okay. So, so there, there are uh, obviously many different sources, and it's interesting that you use the term connective tissue. I, ne- I never thought of this, like first party. So can you just elaborate a little bit more on that? Why is that a connective tissue? And do you first start with third party data, and then you add the first party to kind of connect and find more truth in the data? Or just if you can elaborate more on that. The order doesn't matter. I think it's it goes to show the importance of the first party data. Really, like yeah, the, uh, we mentioned earlier, first party data is like highly it's trustworthy, correct? It's what you get by interacting with your customer directly. So having that as the foundation for your data strategy becomes very important. Whether you get you know set up the first party data strategy and then get the uh, third party data or vice versa, it, it doesn't matter the order in which you do it. The point is how important first-party data is when it comes to customer engagement. That, that's what we mean by connective tissue, and it brings it all together. It acts as the foundation for all other insights you learn about the HCP or your patient. Mm-hmm. Got it. Foundation of all the insights. I mean, that, that's really powerful. And now, when it comes to content, right? We And we help pharma companies, uh, of course, with the with having a Netflix-like personalized content hubs. And personalization is a, is a massively big trend in, across different industries. Some industries are well ahead. Pharma, I think it's really coming in a big way. The question is, what's the role of content in obtaining the first-party data, especially having in mind that pharma companies traditionally struggle with producing on-demand content because every word needs to go through a careful review and approval process, MLR and PRC committees. And at the same time, I've seen in other industries, content being the main source of first-party data. And HubSpot has introduced the word inbound to the world. And many companies started to produce a lot of content, hire journalists, have articles, then they switched to audio and video. So now we have a mix. So really becoming like a content marketing machine, producing a lot of content where each piece of the content qualifies a potential customer or prospect, shows indication of interest, tells us a little bit more what they're interested in. And HubSpot has, you know, got that to really, you know, next level over the years and many other companies follow. There's Content Marketing Institute and a lot of books came out. And Pharma, on the other side, if you look at it, is a very small num- amount of content that comes out. It's more and more. So I wanted to understand, is content one of the, looking at the future, you expect content to be one of the leading data sources, especially first-party content, data sources that will grow whether it's a webinar or whether it's an on-demand something, but really content, or there are other sources that you think will grow more than content? I would say no, content is great. I mentioned the the whole no CHCP trend being on the rise, correct? Like, so yeah, how are you supposed to engage them if they don't see you, if they're not making FaceTime with you? So then, which means you have to offer content of value. You, you want to create brand awareness. This is especially something we see in the, the younger HCP demographic, correct? Like they, they're social savvy social media users. So they are very good at consuming content that is digital rather than in-person, face-to-face interaction. Yeah, I would definitely say content, especially first-party content, it plays a huge part in future customer engagement strategies. Uh, simply put, and videos are a great way to do it, right? Like, I mean, how, many, how much time do you spend 
looking at YouTube shorts or YouTube videos to learn something rather than, you know, Googling something going on a website or reading a book or reading an ebook. So I would say videos and digital content in general play a huge part in that future strategy. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And with video, another thing you can also, in the context of data, like you know exactly how much someone watched and whether at, you know, 52 seconds they clicked on a conversion button. It's like, oh, it's something in that video that we get someone to watch to that second, they will actually ask for a sample or request a web visit. So it can be extremely powerful. With article, it's a little bit more difficult, I think, with heat maps and everything's possible, but it's still it's still harder. So yes, we, we see that world also in which there is more content, more content is being produced simply because the behavior of doctors has shifted and with COVID it has that shift has accelerated in, in the sense that they prefer convenience and short form. And then if they're interested more, okay, let's talk to what's a human being rep or MSL from the farm organization. But then I ask as a doctor more technical questions and also more more prescriber kind of questions rather or also ask for samples rather than asking basics. What's the efficacy of a product? I, I have seen that. And I recently ran a poll on my LinkedIn profile and I said, it's very straightforward, like obvious kind of answer. But it was, do doctors, in your opinion, do HCPs trust more, option A, KOL talking about the efficacy of your product, option B, your rep talking about the efficacy of products. So 95% was last week, 95% says KOL. I'm like, okay, so why don't you try KOL on a video (laughs) instead of rep you know, in person and see how it works. And also videos don't get tired. We're 24 <laughs> seven scalable and things like that. Um, but even then, one thing to keep in mind, even then, you know, the ATPs are unique beings, correct? Like they, yeah, they prefer chaos, but they may want to hear about different aspects of a brand. For some, it may be therapeutic benefits. For others, it may be dosage, side effects. So like, I, again, understanding for a given ATP, yeah, we serve content but what were they interested in? How much time did they spend on any given video? Did they finish watching a video? Are there videos that they completely ignored? Like all those insights are valuable as well. It's not a one and done thing, right? Like it's a continuous loop, if I may. So you, we, you're constantly learning about what this ATP likes when engaging with their content. So we can give them more of that and give them less of what they're not interested in. All right, great. So we talked mo- a lot about you know data sources, quality of data, cleanliness, first party, third party data, registration, non-registration, and we touched a little bit on what comes after that. You know, after the data is being processed inside the CDP, and you mentioned how some of the ways that, for example, the CDP can give you data whether email is the right channel or not. Now, I assume at this point, and it's probably been for some time, that CDP is apart from being that central digital place, is, is, an, is an orchestration place, as you said, where there are powerful prediction mechanisms that actually can tell you, well, based on everything we know about Dr. John Smith, the next best action would that we would suggest that has 67% of probability is to call them or email them. And then maybe even be able to say, well, if you use this, the likelihood of them starting a prescription is XYZ, like predicting even the second next best action. So how far is the technology with that? Is technology ready? Is ChatGPT helping <laughs> with all that? So I'm curious to, maybe that's a separate question, but how much can CDP help with prediction and recommendation for the next best action? Yeah, so there is some confusion out there in general, right? Like in a CDP still, it's like 
as I said, there are a few different definitions for CDP, and there is some misconception around what a CDP does as well. So a lot of people mistake um, it's an ex-best action engine or, it's, uh, it, or it includes an ex-best action engine, but it doesn't. Uh, a CDP is not an NB engine. Uh, an ex-best action engine, what it does is it uses data on where a customer is in their journey, right? Like it takes all these customer data points, and then it applies statistical analysis to predict what the next action should be for a brand to engage their customer. A CDP doesn't exactly do that. What a CDP does is it allows you to create complex rules and it allows you to trigger specific actions based on these rules. For example, we can create a rule that says if an ACP meets or exceeds a certain threshold around email rate, the example we talked about earlier, if they meet a certain threshold or if they don't fail to meet a certain threshold, uh, we can either serve them more emails or we can stop sending them emails altogether. But this is not based on any like probabilistic or statistical model as it is with a next best action engine. It's more deterministic in that you're trying to, you defining what these rules are based on what you know about your customers. However, next best action engine, I did say it uses data and then it applies statistical analysis to predict the next best action engine. Uh, the word data is key here, right? Without comprehensive data on the customer, whatever an NBA action engine predicts, it simply ends up being the next action rather than the next, next best action. So what a CDP does, how it works with the um, Next Best Action Engine, is by giving the engine a comprehensive view of data about the customer. And, you know, you can also get data from the Next, Be Next Best Action Engine. These engines, they're not typically built to send the insights exactly where the insights need to be, correct? Uh, they're, not, they're not supposed to be a data pipeline like a CDP is. So that's a gap that the CDP can bridge. You know, CDPs are meant to be good at activating customer data and insights across the omni-channel. So CDP can take the insight from the engine and then send it to the right channel in real time if needed. Got it. Okay, that's great. So you can actually program some of the rules based on knowledge of the market, subject matter expertise, and together with the next best engine and the rules that, let's say, human beings have put into the system based on knowledge of the market, create the most optimal next step in the journey of, of a customer. It reminds me a little bit like you know how lead scoring works and every company has a different system to do it and design it because these are rules that are created by humans. So, and I learned from Gary Kasparov, the chess master, former world champion, and they were he worked with AI, you know, 25 years ago. It's like one of the biggest learnings was the man and the machine always beat the machine. And so it's very interesting to think about. So, so that's what now we see a proliferation of AI assistants. I remember he was saying this 20 years ago. The AI assistants are man and the machine, <laughs> beat the machine for now. <laughs> Machines will dominate <laughs> 50 years from now. Okay. All right. So what is the role? I have to ask you this. What's the role of AI and GPT in CDPs? Is Are those language models going to improve how CDPs work? Are they relevant, irrelevant at all? Do you, have you guys had the chance to <laughs> kind of go deeper into this or it's still early? I would say it's very early, right? Like at least, you know, the way we think about CDP is supposed to be this deterministic um, data pipeline, if you will, correct? It's, it's, it, we're all about the data. We're all about integrating with best of breed tech and doing these, this tech what it does best, you know, whether it's an NBA engine, whether it's an email server, whether it's something like ChatGPT. So giving it the data, we're all about breaking down the data silos and giving it the data it needs to do what it does best, right? So we may not try and replicate uh, the functionality that these best of breed tech do, including ChatGPT, for example. But it's simply about like making sure they have the right data at the right time, so they can do they can just run with it. 
So that's really the goal. Having said that, we haven't, it's early stage right now in exploring the possibility, but it's about, but if you conceptually, if you think about it, what data can we serve up an AI tool like this in order for it to do its thing? That that's the way we think about it. So that philosophy hasn't really changed. But in terms of how the insights coming out of that could be leveraged, that's something we're still exploring. Got it. Clear. And it could be people talk about GPT, different business models, or one of one of the you know, more advanced things is to have a proprietary data set going in so that you can actually build a layer uh, of infrastructure that will affect the output, then it's pretty unique. So and then when it comes to any any examples that you can share or conceptually companies that do do this well, pharma companies that do this well, whether it's HEPs or patients, what do they do versus the companies that you think are in a little bit earlier stage, less mature when it comes to use of CDPs? Yeah, I'm not at liberty to name specific names, but I would just say, yeah, some companies, you'd be, you'd be surprised. You would, you would think. Sure. I never ask for names of the companies. Correct. <laughs> so you would think in some cases, the bigger companies would be slow to move. That, you know, that may be the case. But in certain examples, certain use cases, what we're seeing is the bigger companies are more nimble than many of the smaller companies when it comes to adoption. Correct. They, they're doing very, let's, you know, the example I can think of would be, hey, you're searching for a BMW car and all of a sudden you go to a site and you see a Mercedes advertisement. So that's a very good example where like, again, you, you're talking about, you're researching one particular brand but you're seeing a competitor's brand when the ATP goes on a different site. So that's just one example. So there are use cases, some pretty cool use cases that companies are exploring, and they're doing it not by just by looking at one data source. They're taking into account so many different data points coming from so many different disparate sources uh, to enable these use cases. So I would say some companies are doing a much better job than others. They're being more agile, being more nimble, while others are you know, being risk-averse. And not to mention, you know, they, they have fear of, tech like CDP kind of co-opting their existing tech stack. And we try to explain to them, no, we're not trying to replace any of the best of breed tech you already have. A CDP is supposed to really sit at the heart of it and then talk to all these systems so they don't have to talk to each other. Because for them to talk to each other in the way you want them to, that would take a lot of time. You know, a CDP is really there to break down the barriers. So the companies that understand that are really able to unlock the value of the data investments they already have by putting the CDP on top of it. The ones who don't, they, they're still struggling. They want to, but they, I think they're still stuck in the, like the old school mentality. Yeah, got it. And then I really like how you say it's really sitting at the heart of, I would say, omni-channel orchestration. Exactly, exactly. We're not supposed to you know, supplant anything. We're not trying to replace anything. It's there. It's going to break down the barrier. So, and you know, companies, are, they have all these you know, expensive data investments. And like this data isn't cheap. Uh, there are companies who rely on doing this recession, you know, like mining gold, basically, so pharma companies can act on them. But they're not getting the full value out of all these data assets. But when they're able to break down the silos and get all this data, view it all together in a unified customer profile, which is what a CDP facilitates, all kinds of interesting use cases reveal themselves that they couldn't think of before because they, these assets were, they really were disparate. They were just really not interacting with each other. No, they are. And I would assume, and I maybe could have asked you this at the beginning, I would assume that there is a direct impact on top line, bottom line that was demonstrated with the use of CDPs in pharma industry and other industries. So if you do this right, you can expect a certain percentage increase in our, of ROI or engagements, things like that. Script lift, ROAS, all kinds of metrics, yeah. The, the difference before and after, you know, provided that they are willing to unlock the, they're willing to, they're keeping an open mind, they're taking 
um, a bold move in implementing these use cases. Yeah, the difference is day and night, definitely. Yeah. Okay. And then last question I wanted to ask you before I ask you a series of short questions about you, so listeners learn more about you, is um, how is Telium different versus other CDP companies in the context of pharma? Sure. You know, we don't like to do a direct comparison. We, you know, we tell our customers who we are and they connect the dots. So that's what I'm going to try and do today. So Telium was founded in 2008. Our mission has always been to connect to our customers' data so they can connect with their customers. And we're definitely a pioneer in the CDP space. It's one of the, one of the original CDPs that came in the market. You can, again, as I said earlier, Telium is a rules-based data orchestration engine. We have over 1,300 turnkey integrations to help with real-time data collection and activation. So wherever the data is sitting, we can connect to it, and wherever the data needs to go, we can send the data there in real-time. So we have a pharma-specific CDP product called Telium for Pharma. In addition to the core Telium CDP features, our Telium for Pharma product comes with specialized out-of-the-box integrations and features to support the pharma marketing and customer engagement efforts on the part of our customers. So using these integrations, you know, customers can um, build unified ATP and patient profiles by leveraging data from CRM systems, brand websites, research, endemic research websites, and what have you. And once all this data is in, and once these customer profiles are created, then they can be activated across any channel that, where they need to be, website, call center, email service, CRM, what have you. Um, again, it's about offering the CDP, uh, the, the CDP offering the ATP and the patient a seamless experience to improve health outcomes for the patients. And we've also been HIPAA compliant. Uh, we have been HIPAA compliant since 2015. We were the first ever CDP to become HIPAA compliant. So, you know, if marketing effort requires the handling of PHI, we're built to we're built to handle that. Wonderful, very clear. Some questions for the very end. It's been a fantastic conversation in many uh, ways, educational. I think we have a whole separate episode, just, you know, focus on patients or focus or more advanced deployments of CDP. I think the... My goal is sometimes to really help people be on, get on the same page because when we talk about omnichannel and personalization, there is no discussion about omnichannel orchestration without data at the heart of everything. And so my goal is to, to make sure that everyone understands the foundation first and then we can go into a little bit more advanced stuff. So first question, what do you believe will be the industry buzzwords of 2023? One word or two words? Omnichannel. Omnichannel. Is there any book that you read over the last year or two that comes from top of my mind that left an impact on you, made an impact? Um, actually, it's not data-related. I'm, um, I'm reading a novel uh, called Musashi, set in feudal Japan. It's a bit philosophical, a bit historical fiction. Uh, but yeah, not, not work-related, but something I've been enjoying. It's, it's a massive book. Tough read, but very, very well, well worth reading. I assume you don't read only uh, books related to work, so <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, I uh, yeah. that's what I expected. Uh, what is your go-to music genre or song when you need some inspiration? I've been getting into a lot of soundtrack, believe it or not. I mean, I'm typically I've been a like an alternative or a classic rock kind of guy, but I think I've been really getting into soundtrack a lot. I think that's a post-pandemic trend for me. Um, I've been watching a lot of, I was watching a lot of movies and TV shows. So I like when I listen to the soundtrack, it's like they tend to be very evocative. And I think soundtrack as a genre is crazy underrated, in my view. Yeah, yeah. We're just about to go to Hans Zimmer. They have this in New York where you have like a piano only Hans Zimmer and the candlelights, called candlelight concerts. That sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. What's the one sentence advice you would give to someone just starting in the world of pharma commercialization and more specifically the world of data and CDPs? 
I would say be persistent or persistence if you're looking for a single word. You know, the you know, pharma industry, huge lot of um, regulatory landlines. We have to be very careful. So things, you know, you will face setbacks, but be be patient and be persistent in your marketing efforts. That's what I would tell them. Great. And then where can people find you online? Oh, I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn would be the best way to reach me. I don't have social media. I don't have Instagram or Twitter or anything like that. I'm very, I guess, old school, bit of a Luddite when it comes to social media in general. But LinkedIn is such an amazing platform. You know, so much activity and uh, buzz is going on there. So I, I would be missing out if I weren't on LinkedIn. Got clear. So then we'll use LinkedIn data on your behavior to put in our CDP system. <laughs> Just kidding. Sounds great. Right, great. It's been a phenomenal conversation. In many ways, I could uh, feel very educational, informative uh, for the audience. So thank you so much for joining today. We'll stay for a few more minutes after we hit the stop button. But this has been great. Thank you. It's been great. Fantastic questions, Bozzi. Appreciate your time. This podcast was brought to you by Evermed. Evermed offers pharma companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Evermed, thanks for listening.